to the top. I won gold at the Paralympic Games. There's no, there's no higher place to go. What do I do now? And it's amazing how that moment of being on the podium and that moment of winning and singing my national anthem lasted about 30 seconds. It didn't even sink in that I'd won and I wasn't really happy about that. I was more worried about what was coming next. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new Service Hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. And now our next guest is none other than former professional athlete Susie Rogers, a British Paralympic swimmer who competed at two Paralympic Games, winning a total of 30 international medals, including 17 gold medals. Of course, one of which was the iconic gold win in the women's S7 classification, 50 meters butterfly at the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. She set an European record of 35.07 seconds and her shocked expression and reaction became a media highlight of the Games. Susie conducted her entire career as an athlete while still maintaining her professional career with a part-time role at the British Council as well as sitting on various boards. Today, Susie continues to be an advocate for inclusion and diversity, showing what is possible through openly speaking about her own experiences as a disabled woman who grew up wearing prosthetics on her left arm and orthotics for her right foot. From advising international development charities on inclusion to protecting our oceans as World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and as Ocean Ambassador for the Marine Conservation Society, Susie has been making billion-dollar moves with her fierce resilience and competitive spirit. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. Before we hop in here, I've got a quick favor to ask you. Smash the follow button wherever you're tuning into this episode. This way, you'll be the first to know about new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends, colleagues, business partners, so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture intersection, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. I'm in rainy and slightly cold London, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's really lovely to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Susie. And as spoken in the prelude earlier, you know, uh, we typically, I, I typically spend time with CEOs speaking about, you know, their leadership style and things like that. But of course, as an athlete yourself, you know, all, all sort of the connecting ties is really about high performance and how we become and tap into our best selves. Uh, and as our friend Greg would say, in an effortless way, and, and really want to speak about that in, in this episode with you. You started your career a little bit later after university. You were on the swim team and things like that. But how does someone transition from, yeah, I like swimming, to I'm going to win? And actually, you know what? I'm going all the way to gold uh at the end of it. It happened quite organically. I mean, I wouldn't say that I was the kind of athlete that 
at the age of six said, I, you know, mummy and daddy, I want to be um, a Paralympic gold medalist, you know, it, it sort of, I, I kind of found sport in a kind of unusual journey. And, and part of the way I found sport was, was actually um, really for social connection. Um, when I was at university, um, I mean, I've always been a swimmer and I, I love swimming and I, I, I knew I was good at swimming, but I don't think I really got a lot of encouragement at school. I mean, certainly I, I never had you know, talent ID at school, people saying, you know, oh, you know, you're really, really good. It was at university, which I know you call school. It's a different way of saying it. But yeah, at (laughs) university, uh, I was feeling a bit isolated, really. I left home. um, And I guess I was looking for that connection. And I just found I thought I thought about joining the university club um, and being part of that. But actually, I wanted to experience what it was like to be in in kind of disability competitions because I'd always really competed against non-disabled people. I was very much inspired around watching Beijing in 2008 and then we'd also won the bid to host the games in the UK in London. That that was announced in 2005 and at that point I was graduating from university and I was thinking you know what am I going to do and I was working but thinking oh you know there's an opportunity here a home games which is everybody's dream to compete in front of a home crowd and but the whole time I was I was swimming and I was using it as a way to connect with people so it it was definitely a hobby that I knew I was good at but kind of then led me in this direction the lesson I've learned from that is that you know you follow what you enjoy and you follow what you love and somehow it can lead you to some really interesting, amazing places. If I may, you know, you mentioned something there that I want to dive a little bit deeper on. You you talked about the transition of uh, competing with non-disabled and then transitioning to then think, maybe I want to join and and connect with this community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, framing it from the perspective of many of us who sometimes feel inferior Right. And of course, we can't even imagine sort of your life and, and your lived experience. It's interesting that you said, you know, I, I wanted to compete with people like me in some way. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, that uh, sort of mental model and thought process there. Well, I suppose there's two aspects to that. Um, one of them is the way I was brought up. So, you know, I was born with my disability. I was born missing the lower part of my left leg and the lower part of my right, uh, my left arm and some kind of malformations of my right leg and foot. So I was born, my parents didn't know that there was anything wrong. Nothing was picked up in scans. And then, you know, suddenly I arrived and it was, you know, quite a shock for them. And I think, you know, from the word go, my parents are extremely practical people and very much, you know, this is what we're dealing with and we just get on with it. And so I was brought up to be told, you know, you are equal to everybody else. and You just have to adapt things and work around things. So I suppose most of my upbringing was spent outside of the disability community um, and very much in, in a mainstream environment. And I guess at some point it kind of struck me because there's pros and cons to that, really. And I'm sure my parents would agree because it, it struck me at times like, why is this so challenging? And and, and how come yeah. I can't really relate to anybody about this? And, you know, it, it, and, and why are there so many barriers there? And why is it so complicated to do, you know, just things that people take for granted? So there was that aspect of it, of wanting to reconnect with a community and to meet people who I knew I could relate to in many ways and talk about experiences with and, you know, that kind of thing. But equally, or that dimension of, of actually 
not that I was racing against non-disabled people and losing, because sometimes I would actually be winning. Um, yeah. But but more, <laughs> but more so to see where I sat or where I was positioned within the you know the Paralympic swimming movement, and that that was something that intrigued me because obviously a decent swimmer because I can still. I can basically train with people with two arms and two legs and, and be able to keep up with them. So what would happen if I then w- raced against people who were technically um, of a similar disability to me? What would happen? So so there were two aspects to it, really. Wow, that's interesting. And you decided to, you know, take that even further and bring that to competitive level, sort of at an international level. Talk to us a little bit about sort of that transition. I mean, you said you were also working, right? You were sort of like working and swimming at the same time. When did you know, and this this is what I'm getting at, when do you know what you love is sort of that ikigai, right? That this is uh, what you can, you know, really do well in the world with, with what you love. And it's sort of that sweet spot in, in the Venn diagram to really take it to the next level. It's really hard to reflect on yourself and try and see, you know, or at least say, right, what is it? What is it that I'm really good at? And I think people find that really hard to do. I find it hard to do even now, now that I've kind of transitioned Mm. out of sport. I think really sitting down and, and thinking about what am I good at, but equally, what are my values what do I want to do? What do I feel passionate about? Where do I think I can have impact? Where am I going to get that buzz that makes me feel really good? Um, and I think with with the swimming, it wasn't necessarily a buzz or oh, I, I know I'm really good at this. It just it's it was a natural fit. Uh, it's it's like you know putting on a pair of comfortable shoes and feeling like you know what you're doing you're confident to do it mm. and you can do it well. And I think all of those things combined just just kind of build up and can take you in that direction. And, you know, I still get that realisation when I'm at work and I, I realise there's something that I know that I'm good at doing and I know that 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 I, I can do it well. And I think it's enhancing those strengths that you have because I think a lot of people think that they need to focus on the weaknesses, try and build up their weaknesses but I've heard a lot of people also say, well, just, you know, look at your strengths and really amplify them and bring them to the table. I knew I was I, I was good at competing and I enjoyed training. I think that's probably the biggest thing about being an athlete is if you actually go in and you enjoy getting up at five o'clock in the morning and going into a cold pool and swimming up and down backwards and forwards constantly you know if you're <laughs> if you're if you're really really happy doing that and you enjoy it then great and i just love pushing my body i love the idea of taking my body to the limits of what it can do not past the limits i mean sometimes mm. i did do that and that was where i wasn't very good at training i never knew when to kind of stop and and give myself time to recover but i think knowing knowing what you can push yourself to do and your limits and testing those limits and having a kind of a no no fear approach is definitely goes part and parcel with being an athlete. You decide to do this competitively. And I know you talk about how everything was organic. But for, I guess, you know, non-athletes like ourselves, you know, 
the many of us tuning in who don't exactly understand the world of Olympians and Paralympians, how do you even get to that level of do you get scouted and then you get identified and then you train? It depends on which country you're in as to the system and how it works with recognition. But there is you go to national level competitions and you, you compete at national level. So you're kind of on that radar. And once you're on that radar, they're watching your times coming down, your personal best times go down. And if you're improving rapidly enough and they can look at your rankings in the world and they can see that you're improving incrementally and it's happening in a fast rate, then that's when you get talent spotted. And, you know, you, you start to, to get more support. You get someone that will come and give you advice. But actually, to be honest with you, most of it I did myself because I was very much outside of the system until I was, you know, very much on the system. I really only got put on funding when I actually went to a European championships and I came away with five gold medals. And then they were like, oh, I think we should put her on funding now. <laughs> um, but I'd literally worked full time and I'd been training myself to get to to get to that level and I'd basically funded it all. Uh, What's been clear, Susie, is you and, and I've known you to be so determined in that you've sort of been very clear that you are driving your career and shaping that with a lot of intentionality and building that. Um, you know, what what were some of the lessons that you've sort of if you, you know, I mean hindsight's always 2020, 20, but if you look upon your time as an athlete, uh, you know, what were some of the best um decisions that you made was to t- to keep control of my own career as an athlete we have setups in the uk where you can go and join what they call a performance center which means you completely relocate you go and move yourself to be in a certain place where all of the other athletes train on the on the national team and you get everything you know you get nutrition you get psychology you get all of that support i decided not to i decided to stay with my coach in my that i'd met and with keith who i'd worked with for many years there were times when i did back and forth on that decision and think maybe i should move there maybe i would it would be easier i would be with the team regularly uh, kind of from a motivational perspective but I in hindsight don't regret it one bit um, because I'm the kind of person that is proactive and I do like you know which is very kind of you to say that determination but it's something that's in me to uh, to have that ownership of my journey and as an athlete and to feel like if I if something goes wrong it's on me you know and I and I say that in in the sense that you have a team that work around you you have your coaches you have your support team but ultimately it's you You want to turn around and say to them oh well that didn't work out because of you everything was on me in terms of whether I won or whether I came second third fourth you know anything else so yeah I think I think that's it really it's that ownership Absolutely love that. And, and you you talked a little bit about sort of, you know, what, what they provide you as you uh, enter sort of the radar and you're within the group of athletes that are being trained, you know, one of it being psychology uh, and, of course, yeah. mental health, mental fitness, uh, being an athlete, the, the tremendous amount of pressure just being watched, right, by everyone around yeah. the world. And, of course, we've seen this recently with Simone Biles, uh, with Naomi Osaka coming out. So of course, again, we've had two sides of the coin, right, the international community. Some of I, I've even tuned into broadcasters saying uh, this is setting a bad example um, because it's, you know, you, you're being paid, you're being um, set to a task, and you're not, you're just going to back out like that because emotionally you can't handle yourself. What, what is your response to this? And talk to us a little bit about the mental health aspect of being an athlete. 
I don't know how you can kind of judge <laughs> judge somebody else's own mental health when you you can't get inside someone's head. So when people comment on that, I think you know maybe maybe think in a more kind of human and kind and empathetic way. With mental health, it's very difficult because when you're an athlete and you're you know I used to perform perform <laughs> you feel like a performer. It does feel like you're going onto a stage when you're at that level of Olympic and Paralympic level. And, you know, you're not really prepared for that because it's not like we are performers, but we're not. We're not given the kind of support that maybe an actor might get, you know, about what to expect from the media. You, you get some very basic media training. You get a little bit of psychology, but it's usually about how to cope on race day and how to get the best performance out of yourself. It is woefully under-supported in sport, that, that support that the athletes should get around mental health. I don't think there's enough, and there certainly isn't enough when you retire. You get absolutely nothing. You go from being you know, on a stage in front of 17 and a half thousand people, which is how many were watching when I raced in London. And then, you know, you're, you're on TV in front of millions of people. And then suddenly you're, you're nobody. I mean, if you have a media mm. profile like Simone Biles, you might still get that media attention, but I was probably less well known and, and you do literally get dropped. Um, and you have yeah. to really navigate that yourself. And, you know, I found that transition very, very, very tough. I felt very isolated, very alone. Um, nobody really reached out, even fellow athletes that carry on because they're carrying on in that journey and they're in that bubble of an athlete, they of that athlete world. You know, they don't understand what you're going through. You can't talk to them about it. I think certainly, you know, I hit a point this year um, when the, I knew the Tokyo Games were coming but also I was in lockdown and I, I had been very isolated because of COVID where I thought I need to reach out. I need to get some help. And, you know, we're very lucky here. We have in the UK, the National Health Service, and I reached out and asked for some support. And I was referred to a cognitive behavioral therapist and I worked with her and happily it fell over the time of the, the Paralympic Games period and I really needed that, you know, and it was absolutely pivotal and quite transformative because I'd never been offered anything like that as an athlete. And it was so, so valuable to kind of process that transition, process this new journey and this new phase of my life, let go of the old um, athlete me and and to kind of move on from that identity of being an athlete and to realize that I have a lot to offer, not just being a Paralympic athlete. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. It's interesting that, you know, what, what you're getting at with regards to that identity, right? And many Many of us, you know, professionals, a lot of um, the audience of Bill and Dollar Moves are high-powered executives. You know, we've had CEOs of unicorns and, you know, sold their companies for close to a billion dollars, things like that. 
Um, and then many of them, of course, you know, and, and I include myself in this, where we tie our career to, ident- mm. to our identity, right? You know, the usual question is, who, who are you? What do you do? How, yeah. how do you think about identity today? And, and sort of how have you emerged from that transition in, in associating well, identity and self? Imagine if you've set up a you know billion dollar company, right? Or you've 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 set up something and it's done very well. It really is very similar to that journey as an athlete because you plan, you're setting, you're working towards a goal of whatever it is, you know, selling your business or creating it or getting to a certain target and leading it through. And you're, you know, I talked about the importance of me taking ownership and responsibility for the successes or the failures and the the team that I bring around me. And it's exactly the same when you're leading a business. And I think, you know, it's it's a difficult one because when you've got to that point of achievement, and, and I'm sure that probably a lot of your listeners will be very perfectionist tendencies, you know, highly driven, highly motivated, extremely proactive, Again, a lot of the things that I would identify with, you you then have this label next to you of, you know, social entrepreneur or, you know, award winner or, you know, X, Y, Z that you've ticked. And then, you know, the inevitable thing is, right, what next? What do I do now? You know, where do I go? And uh, I think that's something I experienced because I was like, well, I got to the top. I won gold at the Paralympic Games. There's no there's no higher place to go. What do I do now? And it's amazing how that moment of being on the podium and that moment of winning and singing my national anthem lasted about 30 seconds or however long <laughs> yeah. it was, however long the national anthem is. I, I don't know how long it is. Someone will have to tell me that. But, you know, it lasted a very short amount of time. The medal hanging around my neck. Yes, there are moments afterwards. Um, but, you know, if you were to say well, that's it, you've achieved everything, you must feel great now. I mean, you know, it's it's ironic because I wouldn't say it ne- necessarily opens the door to, you know, working out how, how the world works. Oh, I've won a gold medal, so that's it, you know? Not at all. I mean, it's just part of a the journey of life, isn't it? And I, I suppose you see it as stages leading you in the direction. And I think it's the same thing with business is, you know, it's taking stock of that achievement and always being, you know, as perfectionists, people can often tend to not pat themselves on the back for an achievement. I think it, you have to, for many years, I, I didn't even, it didn't even sink in that I'd won and I wasn't really happy about that. I was more worried about what was coming next. And I think, mm. you know, to get to that point where you take hold of where you are and say, no, that was an incredible achievement. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've achieved. Um and to use that, the good and the bad in that journey of getting you to that point, learning from that and going over that is so valuable. And I look back on my journey and mostly I don't focus on that winning moment. I focus on all of the little bits that got me to that point and how those can take me forward into the next phase of my life. And 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 also it's okay to step back and say you don't have to achieve constantly and you don't have to be winning awards all the time to enjoy life and to make the most of those simple moments. And I think COVID should have taught us that surely, you know, we're all 
you know, locked down and isolated. And, and so we have to be faced with the reality of who we are and, and accept that, you know, we don't have to always be out there frantically doing everything, flying all over the world. You know, we can just take a moment to breathe. And I think that's, you know, a key, key thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you pointed out about how you yourself um, were anxious. You weren't enjoying. It's, it's always what next, right? You weren't exactly enjoying the win. You were focused on what next and what next and what next. So, I mean, you know, you, you've been great in transitioning into uh, helping so many others in, in your similar position and beyond through the international development work that you're doing. How did you find yourself to say, okay, this is next in my chapter? Did you give yourself a couple of years to try different things or how did you find that? Yeah, I did. I tried a few things. I moved jobs a couple of times. I moved sectors um, to find where I was fitting or where I could have impact. And I realized that I wanted to kind of do give back and, and try and make impact that wasn't just about me winning. Um, you know, it was about trying to change a narrative and, and not necessarily in an activist way, but but in a you know, I want to be in a mainstream environment, changing attitudes towards disability from within that environment. And so, you know, this opportunity came up to work on international development. And I first worked in economic development. So looking at investments into, into you know, so-called developing countries and low and middle income countries and seeing how they could be more inclusive of people with disabilities, you know, through employment, through, um, you know, policies and strategies and so on. And then an opportunity came up to work in global health, which is obviously extremely topical right now. And, you know, the health sector, there's been some massive um, uh, shocking data out there and evidence around, um, you know, the disproportionate impact on on people with disabilities around COVID-19 in terms of direct impacts, but also indirect through lack of access to essential facilities and services that people would normally be able to access but couldn't during lockdowns. And I think that really um, inspired me to feel like I wanted to do something in that space and to, to, to support that work a little bit more. So, yeah, it's kind of incredibly rewarding um, and very important work. But I, I definitely see myself as someone who um, can make an impact through uh, starting conversations and, and, and challenging ideas, but also not in a kind of complaining or shouting way but more in a kind of collaborative way and bringing people to understand the the why and and the why it's so important and the how we can take it forward really yeah and and talk to us a little bit you know I mean I I speak for myself in that you know I have very little knowledge you know beyond conversations with Kelly and yourselves in terms of the multi-trillion industry so much development going around the world and and what corporations organizations are working towards to enable access and to really mainstream almost a conversation, right, between the disabled and the not disabled. Talk to us a little bit about what we're seeing here from a landscape perspective for the opportunity. I mean, there's a huge opportunity because I think there's an assumption. I mean, there's, well, if I go, if I go back to basics, Mm. you know, people with disabilities really are disabled because of the structures in society that we have, which are basically unfair and create inequality. So, you know, when we look at barriers to for people, they could be physical barriers like access to a building. They could be 
um, attitudinal barriers, like someone assumes that someone with a disability might not have any money and therefore might not want to buy their own possessions and things, you know, silly things like that, but just at a kind of basic level, there's communication barriers, there's, you know, institutional barriers, there's, there's so many barriers that are there within society. And it isn't, it's, it's, it's more the fault of society for not um, supporting or enabling people with disabilities to be part of that. And that's why we need to be part of the conversation, because um, very often, someone might say, well, you know, you need to do this, or you need to change this. But actually, if you talk to the person with a disability, they are probably best placed to know what is uh, what they might need or what might be useful for them. And I think very much in the kind of consumer space, uh, a lot of companies don't really consult with people with disabilities to understand how products can be adapted very simply or, you know, to, to make them more accessible for, um, you know, people with a visual impairment or a hearing impairment. So I think there is more of an awareness out there and it's growing and there's definitely, um, you know, more being done in this space. Um but I think there's still a long way to go. And when I think about the health sector, for example, you know, there's a huge amount to be done around, you know, basically, well, basic collection of data in a lot of countries. You know, people with disabilities mm-hmm. aren't even counted in some places. So it's looking looking around um, census uh, census data um, and, and making sure that, uh, you know, employees are creating an open culture where people can talk about disability. They're not afraid to discuss that uh, in in a conversation, but also even looking at senior leadership. I mean, how many leaders out there would have have a disability, would identify as having a disability and would talk about it openly without fear of judgment? So there's there's so many different areas that I could kind of, we could talk on a whole other program about. Well, we've covered quite a lot of ground here. And, you know, this is a short program. But now we transition into million dollar questions. Eight quick questions. And your first, you know, first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready, Susie? I am ready. <laughs> Always ready. Good. This might be obvious, but what's your highest high? I think winning winning gold, but I think my highest high was actually when I won gold at the World Championships in a team. We, it was in, in a relay event, and I was coming off the back of uh, being injured and ill, and mm. I swam the last leg of the race, and I managed to hold on to the win, and I did it for the girls. I didn't do it for me because I was really poorly and quite in pain but I, it was it was probably the best race I've ever done second to my wow. obviously winning in Rio <laughs> lowest low earlier this year it was really tough when I was in lockdown isolated feeling quite like I was disconnected from the sport community and knowing that the games was coming up and I wouldn't really be a huge part of it I think that was probably a pretty pretty low point when you think of the word successful who do you think of and why I kind of would say that I think successful people aren't necessarily people that are rich or who have achieved a lot, but are actually content within themselves and with what, and they don't look back at their life with any regrets, but just look at everything as a kind of learning journey. Um, I'd say probably, I say possibly my mum has managed to do that quite well. She's sort of navigated a lot in her life and steered me to be quite an independent person and gave me a lot of strength and I think the one thing I would say is that she's someone that you know doesn't doesn't rate achievement over just being content and comfortable within who you are which I think is quite a skill really yeah wow wow worst advice that you've been given 
when I was kind of not allowed to take part in sport and the PE teachers would just sort of let me they just kind of sat me in the library because they didn't really know what to do with me I wouldn't say that's necessarily advice but it's still bad that that uh, there wasn't that opportunity to really pursue my athletic talents from an early age I guess yeah well it's it's that they um, also chose to sit you out rather than Mm -hmm find a way with you yeah yeah I guess because there was an assumption that because I had a disability and they weren't aware of options for me that that I couldn't do sport you know yeah wow most important or hardest lesson you've had to learn probably that not everyone will like you (laughs) because I'm a bit of a people pleaser and I think you've got to realize that not everyone will agree with you not everyone will like you um but you have to be okay with that and be comfortable with your own decisions and who you are and be strong in that so yeah favorite tool or hack for productivity mindfulness 100 percent yeah uh visualization as well so kind of rehearsing things thinking through things but also emptying your mind and just being in the now finally um you know for those that have been in the rough um as you have that are going through some of the hard things moving forward whether that's an entrepreneurship whether they're scaling their businesses What's your number one uh, takeaway that you want them to have? Well, I mean, this is uh, this is taken directly from a kind of a self-help book, but I can't remember the name of the author. So there you go, another book that's good. But basically, <laughs> feel the fear and do it anyway. I can't remember the author, but she mm. definitely does exist. But it, it's, um, yeah, definitely just don't be afraid. Don't worry if things go wrong. Don't, don't be afraid of failure. It's not failure. It's learning. You'll, you'll just learn from it. As long as you learn from things, it doesn't matter. And, and just don't give up. I mean, I think the one thing in my career as an athlete, there were times when I could have given up and walked away and said, that's enough, I'm done. Um, but I think there's that little bit of instinct and that little bit of something inside of you that tells you to keep going. So listen to your intuition and, um, you know, you'll know when it's time to walk away. Ah, oh, Susie. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, oh, for no sharing. I mean, you know, everything that you've been through, and it, it is truly remarkable. Sometimes, you know, we in, in our um, lives, you know, we, we say we're not good enough, we complain, things like that. But just seeing someone like you just feel the fear and do it anyway. Just that is it, that so isn't my phrase. It's definitely not my <laughs> phrase. So I, I don't want to take copyright credit for that one. But no, it is yeah. a good idea, though. That, that's yeah well yeah. well it is a good idea and, and important than the idea is that you show us by example so Susie thank you so much for your time and uh, we are so excited to continue to see you uh, thrive in, in your next few chapters in life and hopefully I'll see you soon Susie and give you hugs <laughs> thank you for having me Sarah thanks so much and thanks so much for tuning in this week you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.